You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Good to see all of you today. I want to encourage you to, uh, to keep your Bible open there in Romans 6 or, or to pull it up on your phone. I want you to see there's a lot of rich theology uh, that Paul lays out for us there. And I want you to be able to see it as we look at it a little more closely uh, together. Uh, this particular passage always makes me think of the Lion King. Uh, I love the story of the Lion King. I don't know if you remember the story. Uh, little Simba uh, was a young lion, just a cub really, uh, when his father uh, was killed. And Simba is tricked. M- Mufasa was his father. Mufasa was killed. And Simba is tricked into believing that Mufasa's death was his fault. And so filled with shame, filled with grief, Simba runs away. He runs away into exile. And then there out in the wilderness, he's rescued by two little animals, a uh, warthog and a meerkat. Who doesn't love a meerkat? Um, they rescue little Simba uh, and, they, and they end up raising Simba. And so Simba grows up learning to eat bugs instead of meat. He grows up living their lifestyle, which is the Hakuna Matata lifestyle, which means no worries, no worries. It's just hanging out, just taking life as it comes which is not really the life that befits a a lion. Chasing bugs, being silly, having no responsibilities, just kind of living for yourself. That's not really how a lion is supposed to live. And so when Simba's a little bit older, he's confronted with a vision of his father, Mufasa. And this is what Mufasa says to him in the vision. He says, Simba, you have forgotten who you are. And so you've forgotten me. Look inside yourself. You're more than what you've become. Remember who you are. You are my son. Remember who you are. In the words of, in the voice of James Earl Jones, which I can't, I can't pull off. Remembering who you are is one of the biggest parts of how the gospel works in your life to change you. That's what I think this passage teaches. If you've been with us the past few weeks, we're looking at Romans chapter five through chapter eight this fall, and we've just been in Romans five the first few weeks. And what we've seen in Romans five is that God gives us a new status through our faith in Jesus. He justifies us, which means he declares us righteous, right? We're not declared righteous because of our own performance, but because of Christ's performance on our behalf. And so justification is not something we achieve, it's something we receive. It's given to us, right? Uh, God is the source of our justification. That means our status with God will never change. It's secure. It, we, we stand in grace now. In Christ, grace reigns. Grace has dominion. Grace rules. That's where we left off last week. Romans 5, look at the end of, Romans, uh, the end of uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 20, about midway through verse 20. It says, where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. It's superabounded. So where there was more sin, there was even more grace. So that as sin reigned in death, grace now reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, grace is stronger than sin. Even if you crank up the sin, grace always covers it. You can't out-sin grace because wherever sin abounds, grace superabounds which raises a question, and Paul anticipates the question. 
And the question is, if grace is stronger than sin, then why don't we just sin as much as we want? Because grace is always going to cover it. Look at verse 1 in Romans 6. This is where he anticipates the objections, the questions that are going to come about his teaching on grace. He says, what, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? In other words, if more sin leads to more grace, then why shouldn't I just sin as much as I can so I can get more grace? Like if grace is the reigning principle in my life in Christ, then why don't I just accept my new status of righteousness and then just keep living my old life, living how I want? Seems like grace gives me the best of both worlds. I get a new status, I get forgiveness, I get peace with God, I get a ticket to heaven, and I can just continue to live however I want, which is awesome, because I love living how I want, because sin is fun. Why don't, I just, why don't we just live like that? Because grace will superabound to us. Watch how Paul answers the question. Verse one, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse two, by no means. And that is the strongest thing that he could say. That's like saying, God forbid it, not in a million years, not in a zillion years. What are you even talking about? And then he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, I want you to notice that Paul doesn't back off the gospel of grace here. He doesn't qualify grace. He doesn't modify grace. He doesn't say, no, 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 that's not what I was talking about when I said grace. Of course, there's a limit to the amount of grace you can receive. Of course, you can't keep sinning because God is going to get tired of doling out grace to you. He doesn't say that. Paul doesn't redefine grace here. He begins to show how grace redefines us, doesn't he? How grace makes us new. Like grace doesn't just forgive our sins. Grace begins to deliver us from sinning. Like grace doesn't just give us a new status of righteousness. Grace begins to produce actual righteousness in our lives. And we're going to see that as we go forward in Romans 6. So you see how Paul answers the question in verse 2. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He appeals to who we are as Christians. He appeals to our, our identity. He basically says, remember who you are. You're a Christian now. You're more than your old lifestyle of sin. It would be crazy to go back to your old lifestyle of sin because that's not who you are anymore. You died to sin. <clears throat> and then for the next <clears throat> 12 verses, he's going to unpack what he means by this. So two points in our text today. Number one, remember who you are. Remember who you are. You see that in verses 3 through 11. And then number two, application, live in light of who you are. Live in light of who you are. You see that in verses 12 uh, through 14. Remember who you are, live in light of who you are. We're going to spend more time, uh, the most time, in, on remember who you are because that's where all the deep and rich theology is. So let's look at it. Remember who you are. Look at verse 2 in Romans 6. Paul gives his thesis there. He says to Christians, we died to sin, so how can we still live in it? So we died to sin, past tense. It's already happened. It's something that's already happened. But what does that mean, that we died to sin? And to help us understand it, Paul gives an illustration. He's going to give a more full explanation in a, in a moment. But first, he gives us an illustration. He gives us something tangible, something we can see. He gives us baptism. Look at verse 3. He says, do you not know? And when he says that, he means you know this, <laughs> you know this, 
Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I wish we could capture Paul's tone here because he is incredulous. He can't believe the question. He's like, how can you ask if we should continue in sin? Don't you know what your baptism meant? Now in Paul's day, when when you said someone was baptized, you meant they were converted to Christ. Baptism didn't cause that conversion. It didn't cause that regeneration. That came by grace through faith in Jesus. But baptism and conversion were held together. Baptism was a shorthand way of referring to the whole experience of conversion to Christ. And so a couple things about this illustration of baptism, I think Paul brings it up for a reason. Number one, he brings it up uh, because it's a sacrament. We call it a sacrament, which just means it's a visible sign that points to an invisible work of God's grace. I love it when we uh, meet with kids to talk about uh, when they're gonna get baptized. And one of the things we always say to them is, baptism is something you can see that points to something you can't see, right? It's, you're gonna get all wet, you're gonna be dripping wet, and you're gonna be able to see that, and it points to something more important going on in your life that you can't see, and that is that God is at work in your life by his grace. And so baptism is a pointer, it's a sign, but, The second reason I think Paul uses this illustration here is because baptism is not something you do. It's something that's done to you. I know this is really obvious, but you don't baptize yourself, right? We had a baptism ceremony a couple weeks ago over in the sanctuary. And uh, we didn't sit out in the pews and wait for those seven people to get up in the water. We weren't like, hey, all right, go on, get up there. (laughs) Baptize yourself. Dunk yourself in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We didn't do it that way. I know this is obvious, but what a beautiful picture of the gospel of grace and how salvation works. You don't save yourself, you receive salvation. In the same way, you don't baptize yourself, you receive baptism. It's a picture of how salvation works. And so baptism, in a very real way, marks you. It marks you. In the short term, it marks you very literally, right? You, 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 you're all, you're all wet and right away you realize you're different because you're looking around and everybody else is dry and you're dripping with wet and everybody's like, why is everybody looking at me? This is awkward. You're marked in the moment, but that short-term difference of being all wet signals a much greater long-term difference in your life and that is that you have a new way of life now. Look at verse four. At the end of verse four, Just as Christ was raised, we too might walk in newness of life. So a person goes down into the water as a picture of being buried with Christ in his death. And then they come up out of the water as a picture of being resurrected with Jesus. And now that person should begin to walk in newness of life. A baptized person doesn't live in the same way they used to live because they're not who they used to be. Right? Remember who you are. Baptism helps us remember, helps us look back and remember who we are. Now, what does the illustration of baptism point to? What does it signify about who we are? And the word I want you to hold on to is the word union. Union. Baptism signifies union. We see that there in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with Jesus, that's union, and uh, 
if we've been united with Jesus in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him, union, in a resurrection like his. And so that word united is a gardening uh, term. It means to grow together. It means to graft in. A skilled botanist, a skilled horticulturalist, I had to look that word up this week, uh, can graft a a shoot of one plant into another uh, such that the two begin to grow together and then the new shoot begins to take all its resources and nourishment from the plant and pretty soon it's like they're one and and what's true of the plant is also true uh, of the shoot. This is saying that we are united to Christ like that, which agrees with what Jesus said in John 15. Remember he said, I am the vine you are the branches, you're grafted into me. And listen, that might be the most important thing about you as a Christian, union with Christ. It's, it's actually the key to the Christian life. Like over 160 times in Paul's letters, he says that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We're joined to him, that's our reality. That's who we are. We are united to the past, present, and future of Jesus. And so what's true of Jesus is true of us. Which means that the death and the resurrection of Jesus aren't just two past historical events for us to look back on. They are that, but they're more than that. Those two historical events affect who we are right now. Right? They, they, they affect how we live right now. We get to participate in them right now, which is huge. So think about the cross of Jesus for a moment. Like how does the cross of Jesus affect the way that we live right now? Well, this is gonna say that just as Jesus died to sin, so we died to sin. Look at verse 10, verse 10. For the death that Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. Does that mean Jesus died because he was sinful? Well, no, we, we know that that's not true. He died to pay the penalty for our sin, right? Sin killed him, but it wasn't his own sin. He took our sin, our guilt, our shame, our wrongdoing on himself, and those things killed him. Sin killed him, he died to it. Now, check out how this affects us now. Look at verse six, this is great. Verse six, we know that our old self, our old self is just our natural self. All that we were in Adam, we looked at what it meant to be in Adam last week. That self, that old self was crucified with him. Like when Jesus died on the cross, we died with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. In order that the body ruled by sin, dominated by sin might be rendered powerless. It's awesome. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Here's something really interesting. That word set free in verse seven is the same word that's translated as justified elsewhere in Romans. So you could read verse seven like this. For the one who has died has been justified from sin, which means you are righteously released from everything you owed to sin, right? You you don't bear the guilt of sin, the shame of sin anymore because you died to it. Sin has no claim on you. All the bad things you've ever done can't hang over you anymore. All your sinful urges don't own you anymore. You don't have to give in to them because in Christ, you have power over sin, whereas in Adam, you didn't. So Paul is saying, hey, it would be crazy to go back to a lifestyle of sin. Like, why would you choose the very things that killed Jesus and killed you? Why would you choose those things? 
That'd be crazy. The debt for your sin has been released. You're no longer enslaved to it. Why would you go back to the thing that enslaved you? That, that would be stupid. That would be crazy. Remember who you are. You're dead to sin. What about the resurrection of Jesus? Like, how does the resurrection of Jesus affect the way we live now? Uh, well, this is going to say that just as Jesus is alive to God, in the same way, we are alive to God. Look at verse 8. Verse eight, now, if we have died with Christ, union, we believe that we will also live with him, union. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Death is not hanging over him anymore because he's already conquered it. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. I love that the gospel doesn't just give us a negative. It doesn't just say, hey, you died. It gives us a tremendous, incredible positive. It says, you're alive. So the gospel doesn't just give us a no, it gives us this glorious yes, doesn't it? It's not just stop doing these things. The gospel says to us, live. Like live in the way that you're made to live. This is what sets Christianity apart from moralism. See, religious, a religious moralist can say, I'm going to get really disciplined. And I'm going to tackle sin in my life. I'm going to stop doing those bad things, those harmful things, those sinful things. But the moralist has, the only resource that the moralist has is his own willpower. So life just becomes a set of rules and regulations and don'ts. But because of our union with Jesus, we have the possibility of living like Jesus lives. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Like who has the most exciting, fulfilling, meaningful, satisfying life possible? Well, it's someone who doesn't have death hanging over them. It's someone who sees life as a big yes instead of a big no, right? It's someone who, who can see this, the, the wide open vista of living for God and living for others rather than the narrow view of just living for self and trying to keep all the rules. We, this is saying we are joined to that person. We, we are joined to the Jesus in his resurrected life. We're in him. And it says the life he lives, he lives to God which means it's possible for us to live for God. It's possible for us to choose God over other things. It's possible for us to make God our highest love. We have all the resources we need in Christ to do that. Why would we ever go back to our old ways? That'd be crazy is what Paul is saying. Remember who you are. You're alive to God because you're united to Christ. So Paul has answered the question from verse one. The question was, should we continue in sin? And his answer is, no way. Not in a zillion years, because that's not who we are anymore. Now, is it possible to continue in sin? And the answer is yes, but it would be ludicrous, because it's not congruent with who we are now. So for example, I'm married to Amy. Uh, would it be possible for me to live my current life as if uh, I'm not married to her? Well, yes. That would be possible. I suppose I could start sleeping out on the couch. Uh, I could start doing all my meals separate from her, which would mean I'm having sandwiches. Um, I could uh, stop talking to her. We could just coexist uh, in the same house. But that would be ludicrous, wouldn't it? Because that's not who I am anymore, right? I, I am one with her. And I would need to remind myself of that. I would actually need to look down at this ring and say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm joined to another. That, that, that's who I am now, which affects everything about how I live my life. That's who I am. Through our union with Christ, we're dead to sin and alive to God. 
That's what we need to remember. That's what we need to believe. Verse 11 says that. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, it says, so you also must consider yourselves. You must count yourselves. The old-fashioned way to say it is, you must reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That phrase, consider yourselves or reckon yourselves is an accounting term. It means add it all up and live in, what, live in light of what the ledger book says because numbers don't lie. You should count on it. Count on that to be true. He's not saying act like this is true even though you know it's just make-believe. He's not saying count on this like you count on Santa Claus showing up in December. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this is true count on it. It's reality. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. Remember who you are. You're united to Christ. And that union, listen, that union is enabled by grace. It's activated by faith, meaning it's turned on by faith in Jesus. And it's signified by baptism. Like you can look back at your baptism the way I might look down at this ring to remind myself that, yeah, oh yeah, that's who I am. I'm united with Christ. And that union changes everything about my life. All right, that's who we are. Let's end briefly by talking about what we're to do with that. Like what's the application of all this? And the application is to live in light of who you are. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So don't let sin rule over you. And we're like, wait a minute, Paul, I thought you just said we were dead to sin. If I'm dead to sin, how can sin rule over me? How can I, how can I be in a situation where I might obey sin? I thought I'd die to sin. And it's a good question. And I think we, we, we've probably wondered about this. Like if I died to sin, then why is sin still an issue in my life? Like why, why do I still struggle with sin? And here's a little secret. Your struggle with sin is evidence that you died to sin. Like your struggle with sin is evidence that you're a Christian because before Christ, there was no struggle. Like before I was in Christ, I wasn't struggling with sin. Sin had its way with me. But now that I'm in Christ, I'm free to struggle with it. In Christ, our fundamental disposition towards sin has changed. John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, said that sin is no longer a pleasure that delights us, it's a burden that afflicts us. Like, so, like we know sin is there and we don't like it. Because see, we died to sin, but sin has not yet died, right? It's still in us, right? And, and, and it wants to reign. It wants to rule over us, which is why Paul says, don't let sin reign. Like fight against it. Make a choice not to let it rule in your life. And you have that option now to make that choice. How do you do it? Well, it's real practical. He tells you how in verse 13. Look how practical this is. Verse 13, do not present your members, the members of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And present your members, the members of your body, to God as instruments for righteousness. So my body is the vehicle for either sin or righteousness. Like how else would sin and righteousness manifest itself in the world except through the members of my body? So Proverbs 6 talks about haughty eyes, prideful eyes, or a lying tongue, or hands that shed innocent blood, or a heart that devises wicked plans, or feet that run quickly to evil. 
right? So before I was in Christ, the members of my body were, were controlled by sin. They were dominated by sin. They got used to a lifestyle of sin and they got really good at it. And, and even though I've died to sin in Christ, sin still resides in my members, meaning I have habits, I have tendencies, I have inclinations of the flesh that don't just automatically go away. They don't automatically go away. I'm still a fallen human being. And so Paul says, don't present your members of your body as instruments for unrighteousness. Present them to God as instruments for righteousness. And in Christ, we can now do that. We can offer our bodies as instruments for righteousness. And there is a training dynamic to this, isn't there? There's a training dynamic to it because our bodies and our minds are so used to being instruments for sin that they have to be, re be retrained, rewired to serve righteousness, to live in light of who we are now. It's like muscle memory. Like if I've had a terrible golf swing for years, um, I can't just automatically change my swing because a swing coach tells me how to do it the right way or a golf coach tells me how to do it the right way. The only way, uh, you know, just having the right information doesn't make my swing better. The only way to do the, a better golf swing is to do it the right way again and again and again and over and over and over until what I do begins to line up with what I know. So that's what Paul's saying here. We are to continually present the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness until it becomes muscle memory and we begin to live in light of who we are. So let's take our mouths, for example. Almost all of us get in trouble with our mouth in some way. It's universal. We all get in trouble with our mouth. The tongue is this part of our body that's so easily inclined toward unrighteousness, isn't it? Like whatever form it might take. Gossip, slander, discouragement, complaining, cursing, manipulation, anger, sarcasm, boasting. So what would it look like for me to, to present my mouth to God as an instrument of righteousness rather than unrighteousness? Well, I think I would need to know what my unrighteous tendencies are with my mouth, and then I would need to, by faith, choose to do the exact opposite. And so, if I'm prone to complaining, which I am, uh, then I would need to intentionally look to speak about what I see right in any given situation rather than just speaking about whatever I see is wrong in any given situation. If I'm prone to gossip, then I would need to commit to only saying good things about others behind their back. Can you imagine a community that talked about each other behind their backs and you only said good things about each other? It'd be incredible. I can sometimes be harsh with my words. And so I need to pause and choose gentleness. And the good news of the gospel is I can. I can do that now because I'm in Christ. Ray Ortland shared about a men's group in his church that met weekly. And this men's group had a, a commitment to live out Romans 12, verse 10. And that verse, Romans 12, says, uh, 10 says, outdo one another in showing honor. So after Bible study every week, they had what they called honor time. And so guys would just take turns standing up and honoring one another. Bill, I saw you mentoring your son this week. You're a great dad. John, you are really gifted in mercy. I see God's compassion through your life. Stephen, you are so creative. I see that come out in your work. It makes me emotional because it's probably just not that common, is it? To use our mouths for, as instruments of righteousness. 
Those men were being changed by that, and they were changing the culture of a church. And the good news of this passage is, we can do that. <laughs> we can live like that. Like, because sin no longer reigns over us. Verse 14, this is how it ends. This is the last verse. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but you're under grace. So the dominion of sin is done. Sin doesn't rule over you anymore because you're under grace now. And so verse 14 answers the question that verse one asked. Remember the question in verse one? Like, doesn't grace just encourage me to sin more and more and more and more? And verse 14 says, no, the exact opposite. Grace discourages sin. Grace defeats sin. Grace changes me because it reminds me that I'm no longer who I used to be. I'm dead to sin now. I'm alive to God now. And then that grace gives me everything I need to live in light of that. Praise God for his amazing sovereign grace toward us. Let's thank him. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.